0: Well, I'm very glad to be able to be back with you again I did not realize it had been three years since so it's been three years since I've since I've been here okay well I enjoyed being here three years ago and I'm very glad to be back and thank you pastor for the invitation appreciate uh, pastor Elworth's uh, friendship and ministry and I appreciate very much the work that you all are are doing here uh, when I was invited several months ago I was very glad to get that invitation and I thought about what I should speak on, and pastors' only directions were, here's the stuff I've spoken on over the last few months, so don't speak on that, but anything else you can, uh, you can do. And I've been going through a series at our church called Portraits of Grace. I'm finishing it this uh, Sunday, and it has been biographical sketches of Bible characters. And one that I did uh, just a, a few weeks ago is uh, the message that I'm going to give you this evening, based upon the life of someone I'll introduce you to in just a bit. So if you take a look in your Bible at Acts 11, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, as you turn there, I uh, recently read a biography of Sergeant Shriver. He was the first head of the Peace Corps in the Kennedy administration. He was the architect of the War on Poverty in the Johnson administration. He served as U.S. ambassador to France. He was the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket in 1972. Now, as I talk a bit about some things that this particular book that I read about this politician says, I'm not necessarily endorsing his views, so don't get hung up on that. Just uh, listen to what I say from the excerpts from that book. But this man, Sergeant Shriver, died just three years ago. And just as an aside, that's really his name, Sergeant not a military title. His name is Sergeant Shriver. And last year, one of his sons, Mark Shriver, wrote an account of his life. And in it, he recounted the events of his father's 95 years, events both large and small. And there were many large initiatives to speak of. He created the Head Start Program, the Job Corps, the Legal Services Corporation, which provides legal aid to the poor, and many, many others. But, Mark Shriver starts the book by telling the stories of people who had been touched by his dad's life. So, for example, though Sergeant Shriver was a wealthy man, his son wrote that he had requested to be, quote, buried in a sack like the Trappist monks he so admired. He says, the son does, when I tried to satisfy this request, I learned the government prohibited such interment for public health reasons. But I did find that Trappist monks in Iowa were building coffins. I studied the website and chose a walnut box, finely crafted but simple. I phoned the monks to go over the details. A little while later, the director called me back and told me that he had met dad once and would do whatever I asked. He said that it would be an honor to help because dad was such a, quote, good man. And then he says, over the coming days, I heard that phrase, a good man Time and again. Some of the more startling instances of hearing that phrase came back to me as I knelt in the dark beside Dad's coffin on the morning of his funeral. A prominent U.S. Senator who knew Dad well, yet obviously didn't know him as well as he thought, told me, I knew your dad had done a lot, but he did much more than I had known. He was a good, good man. He tells of Ms. Wilson and Ms. Williams, both of whom waited in the wake line at the church for 45 minutes. They told him that they were waitresses at Reeves Restaurant, dad's regular lunch spot across from his office. And before that, Ms. Wilson had waited on him at another restaurant for 35 years. They wanted to tell me that they had never met a more polite, thoughtful man in their 40 years of work. He was such a good man, they said simultaneously. He says, I'll never forget the rumble of the garbage truck outside my house on the day of the wake and seeing Calvin, the trash collector, standing in our driveway trying to decide whether to walk up to the front door and knock. I made it easy for him. I was on the lawn and I went toward him. He had tears in his eyes. He took off his dirty gloves, wiped his palms on his work clothes, and he reached out his hands for mine. What a life, Calvin said. I read about your dad in the paper, and man, I had to put the paper down. I had to take a step back. He helped so many people. What a good man. He said, I couldn't shake my conversation with Edwin at the wake as well. He worked for U.S. Airways and had crossed paths with my dad many times during those years of travel. But not long ago, he had seen Dad struggling, and he had spent half an hour helping him get through the security line. Edwin waited in that line at the wake, too, and he told me that those 30 minutes were some of the most special ones in his life. I never met anyone in all my years like your father. He was such a good man. A childhood friend of mine who was Jewish called and told me that dad had written written him thoughtful letters a number of times over the years. Your father knew more about Judaism than I do. He was such a mensch. Do you know what that means? Before I could respond, he blurted out, it means your father was a good man. And then lastly, throughout the planning of the funeral, Jeannie, dad's longtime assistant, was at every meeting. I asked her finally how long she had worked with him. 33 years, she said. I volunteered on the McGovern Shriver campaign in 72 and went to work for him full-time afterward. That's a long time, I said. Yes, it is, but your dad was special. Not too many big-time lawyers would listen to their assistants. Your dad always did. He didn't always agree with me, but he always listened. He was a very good man. That book by Mark Shriver is aptly titled then, guess what? A Good Man. it's quite a life that touches so many people who, at the end of that life, can apply the moniker, a good man or a good woman. But as impressive as that is to have people say that you're a good person, how amazing would it be to have that as God's verdict on your life? This evening, we're going to survey the career of a man for whom the Bible gives just such an assessment. I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 11. Please take a look at verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now the Bible is careful to note the source of this goodness that characterized the life of Barnabas, when it says he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That is, this is a man who had come to believe. The word for faith in your New Testament is the same word for the word believe. So when it says he was full of faith, he is one who who believed and continually believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, like all believers, he had been given the Holy Spirit to work in his life from the inside out. Many of you know that there are nine fruits of the Spirit named in Galatians chapter 5. One of those is indeed goodness. The source of this goodness that Barnabas possessed, and that any of us who are believers in Jesus can and should also possess, is the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to see tonight is the result of the Spirit-supplied goodness that Barnabas had that should characterize all of us as well. So in the life of Barnabas, I want us to see three things the Bible tells us about him. And from it, we learn that followers of Jesus, like us, are people who are, first of all, willing to help whenever needed. Followers of Jesus, are people who are willing to help whenever needed. The obvious goodness that characterized Barnabas' life was so impressive that the name by which we know him, Barnabas, was actually a nickname that was given to him in keeping with the kind of man that he was. The first time the Bible mentions Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4, and here's what it says in verse 36. Now Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. So his name is Joseph, but he's given this nickname by the apostles Barnabas, and that's what he is known as, and this nickname he is given because it means son of encouragement, because he displayed that kind of character. Now, when it says son of encouragement, that is, in Greek, son of paraklesis. Some of you may recognize that that Greek term because Jesus used the same term paraklete To refer to the Holy Spirit. And the word means comforter, helper, exhorter, counselor. It means literally to come alongside another to supply what is needed. Whether what is needed is a word of encouragement or an act of kindness. And Barnabas did both of those things. He spoke encouragement and he did encouragement, whatever the situation called for. So followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever needed whatever the situation calls for, by word or by deed. Barnabas supplied both of those. He was willing to help in word. Chapter 11, again, verse 23, it says, he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So here's what that passage is telling us. Barnabas sees what's happening with the church in Antioch, and he speaks words of encouragement to those there. And then later, he and his associate Paul would do the very same thing when later they traveled together giving the gospel. Chapter 13 and verse 43 says this, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So Barnabas was one who would use his words to encourage as needed. Now, friends, we only use our tongues to encourage if we see the possibilities more than we see the potential problems. You will only use your words to encourage people. I will only use my words to encourage people if I see the possibilities in an individual more than I see their problems or potential problems. Now, I say this because there were many potential problems with what was going on at this church in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the world behind only Rome and Alexandria. It was a notoriously immoral city. It was similar to Corinth in its degradation. And on top of all of that, verse 22 of chapter 11 says, news about them reached the church in Jerusalem. And the news that verse 22 is referring to and the them that it's referring to is the conversion of Gentiles. In fact, notice what verse 19 says. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, that is, Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And then verse 22 says, And when news of this reached their ears. So that's the news. Now for a Jew like Barnabas to encounter Gentile dogs, as they were viewed by most Jews, and to do so in this immoral city, and these Gentiles are now claiming Christ, Well, Barnabas could be forgiven at least some hesitation. Or if nothing else, he might be tempted to tell them they needed to follow Jewish customs in order to be fully included in the church. In fact, you know many back in Jerusalem from where Barnabas had been sent to Antioch were quite insistent about this, so much so that there would be in chapter 15 of Acts a council to discuss this very issue. How are Gentiles going to be brought into the church? But when Barnabas goes and sees what's happening with these Gentile, now new believers, verse 23 of Acts 11 says, he rejoiced and he encouraged them. Despite the potential problems, and there were many, he saw the possibilities in these new converts and he was able to look beyond the potential problems. So I ask you as I ask myself, do you tend to see people's problems or their possibilities? Gene Getz is a retired pastor and author, college and seminary professor. And he tells the story of a teacher that he had in college who encouraged him to pursue his academic studies. This teacher saw that Getz had a keen mind, but Getz also had a severe stutter that made it painful to hear him speak. The thought that Gene Getz would be a professor of some note, a pastor of a very large congregation, and the host of a radio program were beyond a dream. And yet, he became all of those. And I have heard Gene Getz in person attribute the human cause of that to the teacher who encouraged him in college. Followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever needed. And that means willing to help in word. But it means also willing to help in deed. The ranks of the first church in Jerusalem swelled very quickly many Jews had, according to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, quote, gathered from every nation for the Feast of Pentecost. And many of these Jews, we know, were converted. The very first day, 3,000 came to the Lord. And many of them stayed in Jerusalem because they expected the Lord to return there soon. Well, this created a problem then for that first church. It meant that They had to develop a benevolence system for a very large number of people, and collections were taken to meet the need. The Bible says this of Barnabas. Back in chapter 4 and verse 36, I read part of that passage to you earlier. Now Joseph, but then this is what it says, a Levite of Cyprian birth who was called Barnabas by the apostles and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when it says he sold it and brought the money, the article is there before the word money to emphasize that he sold it and all of the money from the proceeds of that sale he gave. Now, that's important in the next chapter, chapter 5 of Acts. You guys remember a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who acted as though they had given all the money? And Peter rebukes Ananias. He says, it was your land before you brought this money. You could have given all of the money or some of the money, but what you can't do is lie about it. And you've not only lied to men, but you have lied you have lied to God. And you remember he was struck down, and then his wife came not knowing what happened. And Peter said, is this all of the money? And she, in on the conspiracy, lied about it as well. And so this is emphasizing the kind of character that Barnabas had. He took this land of his own, he sold it, and he gave all of it, right, honestly, uh, for the sake of others. Chapter 4 and verse 36 says he was a Levite. That means that he performed religious duties at the temple in Jerusalem. And so here was a man who, in a sense, had access to the ivory tower, and yet he finds himself at the apostles' feet. That's the kind of humility demonstrated in the character of this man who was willing to encourage both in word and in deed. And Barnabas could not have been a Christian for very long when he did this in Acts chapter 4. Remember, this is all occurring in the very early days of the church, so he's a relatively new believer, yet already he's demonstrating the heart of Christ for other people. We're going to see later that Barnabas is chosen for a task, a task of taking an offering from one church to another to supply their needs. In those days, travel was dangerous, especially if you were carrying money, but Barnabas was willing to do that. And so here's a guy who's relatively young in the Lord, already showing the love of Christ for others, even willing to take great risks for the sake of others. Hear this. When you're saved, there's to be an obvious difference between your old life and the new life. When Barnabas was saved, very quickly, very soon, It was very evident that this was a changed man. We see in Barnabas that followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever needed. Here's the second thing we see in Barnabas' life. Followers of Jesus are willing to help whoever needs it. Willing to help whenever, by word or by deed, but also whoever happens to need it. The Bible records the spectacular conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Many of you know the story of Saul on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus for the purpose of killing Christians. Not his way. He's blinded temporarily by the Lord who speaks to him and calls him into his service. Saul proceeds to Damascus, but now he's armed with the gospel rather than with weapons. Three years later, he returns to Jerusalem. And as you might imagine, Saul does not have very many friends in Jerusalem. Those religious leaders who sponsored the persecution of the church have no doubt heard that he's become a traitor to the cause, so they hate him. And his new brothers and sisters in the Lord are not sure he's on the up and up. This may be a plot, they no doubt think, in order to infiltrate our ranks and do even more harm than he's already done. And so just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Verse 26. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Saul desperately needed a friend in Jerusalem. And here's what the Bible says in verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas was someone who by this time had a reputation among the apostles that was much trusted so that he could sponsor now Saul and bring him to the apostles and vouch for him in effect. Barnabas was willing to help whoever needed it, and here Saul needed it. And we see in the life of Barnabas at least two categories of people that he was willing to help, whoever needed it. One category was what we see here, someone who had sinned. He was willing to help one who has sinned. In the case of Saul of Tarsus, my goodness. In fact, he calls himself later, you'll remember, the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. One commentator says, Barnabas was ready to hear the story of Saul. He received Saul warmly, but he made an investigation. He may have had other confirmatory sources available to him. Convinced of the genuineness of Saul's conversion, he took him to Peter and James, the representatives of the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, the reason that commentator says he took him to Peter and James is because if you want to jot it down, anybody's taking notes, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians 1, 18 and 19 say this. Paul says of himself, After three years I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none other of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So he was taken to Peter and James as representatives of the apostles. But Barnabas vouched for the genuineness of his conversion and he vouched for the effectiveness of Saul's ministry. Again, look at verse 27 in Acts 9. It says, He described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, friends, a willingness to receive the testimony of one's word and deed is both wise but also Christian. We do not sit as judges over others for their past. Saul had quite a past, didn't he? We don't sit as judges over people for their past. But we must evaluate their present. And that's what Barnabas did. But when we do, like Barnabas, we do so wanting to believe and believing the best until proven otherwise. And that's precisely what this man of character, Barnabas, did with Saul of Tarsus. Followers of Jesus are willing to help whoever needs it. Including those who sinned, but also including those who failed. Those who sinned and those who failed. You know, friends, every sin is a failure, but not every failure is sin. And we see in chapter 11 and verse 25, Barnabas, the story beginning of Barnabas helping one who has failed. Let me lay that out for you. Verse 25, Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So Barnabas and Saul go off with this relief money to, uh, to uh, the church in Jerusalem. And when they return from Jerusalem, I want you to note somebody that they bring along with them chapter 12 and verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, I'm making the point, the followers of Jesus help whoever needs it, including those who fail. And here you're introduced to someone in John Mark. Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. As someone who failed, as we're going to see in just a bit. And how did he fail? He's taken along on the journey that Barnabas and Saul are going on. In fact, in chapter 13, we're told that the three of them are sent on a journey to proclaim the gospel. But in chapter 13 and verse 13, look at what it says. Chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So they take John Mark along and yet as they start out, he decides to turn back and he goes back to Jerusalem. Now in between, in the very first part of verse 13, Luke who wrote the book of Acts refers to, it says, Paul and his companions. Now, that's significant for this reason. That's the first time that Paul is put first in this group, in this pairing of Paul and Barnabas. And it's at that very time that John Mark decides to to turn home. Up to this time in chapter 13 and verse 13, it had always been Barnabas and Saul. In fact, if you look back at verse 2 of chapter 13, it's Barnabas and Saul. Verse 7... It's Barnabas and Saul and in prior chapters, but now it becomes reversed with Paul, clearly the leader. In fact, if you look down at verse 42 of chapter 13, it says Paul and Barnabas. And down in uh, verse 46 of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas. Now, I'll tell you what that all means here in just a second. But this issue of this, guy, John Mark, becomes a very important one between Paul and Barnabas. And it happens right at the time that Paul becomes the leader of the pairing. And it comes to a head in chapter 15. Chapter 15 and verse 36. Chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now when it says in verse 36, excuse me, verse 39, that they had this sharp disagreement, that's the Greek word paroxysm. We get our English word paroxysm from it. It's 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 a very violent outburst. They had quite an argument about whether or not they should take John Mark with them. But Barnabas decides to take uh, Mark along with him. Now, the reason that Mark had probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the reason he had turned back to begin with is that he resented the idea that Paul was taking over. It occurs in chapter 13 and verse 13, right at the same time, that Paul begins to be the leader. It's Paul and his companions and John, excuse me, John Mark gets off the boat. Another possible reason that he turned back is because he was, wasn't in favor of this Gentile mission that they were going on, and he wanted to go back to Jerusalem where the Jews were. Probably one or uh, some of both of those. But in any case, he turned back, and Barnabas is willing to take him along. Now, remember that Barnabas was very willing... To be the second man in this pairing. John Mark may have resented it, but Barnabas was fine with it. In fact, Barnabas was the one who had sent for Saul to begin with. We read in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So here's what's happening. Barnabas comes from Jerusalem to see what's going on in Antioch. And when he sees these Gentiles being converted, he is glad and he rejoices and he encourages them in the Lord. But he sees this dynamic thing happening in this church and he realizes that this is beyond his leadership capability. And so he immediately goes and sends for one that he has met sometime earlier, the Saul of Tarsus. And he brings him to Antioch. And eventually... Saul becomes the leader. Paul becomes the leader of the pair. Barnabas is fine with that. John Mark may not have been, but that's the kind of guy Barnabas was. And he was willing to help this one who failed, Mark. Took him along with him. And here's what became of John Mark later. Twelve years after this sharp disagreement, this incident, things have gotten better (coughs) for Mark and between Mark and Paul, who wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11, here's what Paul says. Colossians 4, 10 and 11, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends greetings and has proved a comfort to me. So Barnabas' restoration project for, we learn here, his cousin, Mark, turns out to be successful. This this man is restored to fruitful ministry, even fruitful ministry with Paul. Paul says in Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Mark is my fellow worker. And then five years after that, so now a full 17 years after this first blow up, in the last chapter of the last letter that Paul would ever write, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. So this is the kind of guy that Barnabas was. And he teaches us by his example that followers of Jesus are those who are willing to help whoever needs it. Those who have sinned, like he did with Saul of Tarsus. Those who have failed, as was the case with John Mark. So followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever and whoever, and now thirdly, however needed. Willing to help however needed we see in the life of Barnabas that he was willing to help in a number of ways. One was he was willing to help in whatever role he needed to play. He was, for a period of time, playing the role of leader at the church in in Antioch. But he saw and was willing to accept his own limitations. In chapter 11 says, he went and sought out Saul to come and help him and eventually become the leader. And so even though he was not a leader like Paul, he was willing to play that role because it was necessary. He was the man in Antioch for that period of time. And even though he was not a leader like Paul, he still had a sort of gravitas, a, a weight, a weightiness about him. Look at chapter 14, Acts 14 and verse 11. I say he had this gravitas about him. Here's why I say that. Acts 14, verse 11, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he, Paul, was the chief speaker. Now, the reason I say this indicates that Barnabas had this kind of weightiness of presence about him, a gravitas, is because they call him Zeus even though Paul was the chief speaker. And here's why that's interesting. Because in Greek mythology, Zeus is the father of Hermes. And so they look at this guy, and even though he's not the chief speaker, he appears to be in this fatherly role. He's willing to play a leadership role, even if it's a bit out of his comfort zone. He's also willing to relinquish that role when the gifts and abilities of another are needed, followers of Jesus are willing to help however needed in a role or willing to help in a particular task. And we see that in the life of Barnabas. He was sent as an emissary of the apostles. We've already seen that back in chapter 11, verses 22 through 24, and they sent, this, uh, uh, they sent him to check on what was happening in the church at Antioch. So he was sent by the apostles from Jerusalem to Antioch, But he was also sent on another task as the bearer of this relief, this uh, offering, this benevolence that had been taken. In chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, we saw, the Bible says, "...in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren in Judea, this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders." So he was willing to help however needed in a, in a particular role, with whatever task needed to be done? We'll just look at one more in a moment, but let me just ask you, as I ask myself, is that the situation with you? Are you willing to help with whatever role is needed, even if it's outside of your comfort zone? Are you willing to help with whatever task is needed? That was the case with Barnabas, however he was was needed. And there was a third way he was willing to help, and that's in mission. In mission. Chapter 13 tells us of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and it was Barnabas who went along with him. Saul and Barnabas were set apart by the church at Antioch to go on this mission to the Gentiles. and Barnabas was willing to take that on. So as we pull all this together, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, Barnabas was a good man. But how is it that Barnabas or anybody else can receive that assessment from God, a good man or a good woman, when the Bible clearly says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12, there is no one who does good, not even one. So how can this guy be called a good man? Well, dear friends, that's the difference that Christ makes. There is no one, including Barnabas, including me, including you, who is by our nature good. We are by our nature sinful. But Christ changes us. And He gives us His Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit includes goodness. And those who belong to Jesus and those who have His Spirit and thus show the fruit of that Spirit in their good deeds and in their good words and in their willingness to help whoever and however and whenever are needed, Those people will hear from the Lord Jesus himself. You remember, well done what? Good. Good and faithful servant. But a means of that grace, that grace to you and me, in becoming those kind of good people, is for us to look at the lives of those who have gone before us or those who God may have graced us with in our lives right now. And to see them as they have matured in the Lord and the Spirit of God has worked from the inside out in them to produce this goodness in word and deed, willingness to help whoever, whenever, however. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What you're called to do, what I'm called to do, is imitate the faith of a man like Barnabas, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever, whoever, and however needed. And let me just put this in one line for you. Jesus' followers do this. We prioritize what's important to him. That's what Barnabas did with his life. Lord, you place me in circumstances where you want to use me. I want to be used by you because I have prioritized in my heart and my life what's important to you. Therefore, I will do whatever task, play whatever role, go on whatever mission that you have for me. That's the example that God gives us in the life of Barnabas. May that be true of us as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the examples that You give us in Your Word. Those who have gone before and who have embraced belief, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. And then as a result of that, having been given His Spirit, show the evidence, the fruit of that and the goodness of their lives. We thank You for what You have told us about Your servant Barnabas. Lord, I pray that this would be a challenge to me and to us as Your people to be your willing servants who are willing to, as Barnabas, prioritize what is important to you so that we bring glory to you and so that we expand the number of those who are bringing glory to you by seeing them come to you and grow in you. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.